This is All the Cool Parts number 32 for Monday, April 15th, 2013. What's up, everybody? This time on All the Cool Parts Podcast, I'm very excited to have an interview with flutist Mirene Shim. So I discovered Mirene on another music podcast called Sound Notion, and ever since then, I've been following her very closely. She's one of these very rare classical musicians that not only performs, you know, the tried and true classics of the classical repertoire, but she sees a true value in performing and presenting to audiences music of her own time and of her own culture. Uh, and she's gone to really great lengths to find new music, to discover new composers that she doesn't know personally, um, to get to know their music and to commission them and, you know, have them write pieces for her. And she's just released an album this month called The Art of Noise that presents several uh, brand new pieces, uh, most of which that have been commissioned and written specifically for her or maybe all of which um i'm not sure at least most (laughs) um but uh you know i really liked her first album which i've had for a while and uh, i was excited when this was coming out um and when i heard it um i was really blown away i mean it's uh you know you can you can hear the the passion and excitement that she has for music in the CD. Um, The pieces that she chose are really cool, really excited. They're all great pieces. Um, And uh, they're all pieces of our time right now, Um, but yet they're they're classical music. And um, she's going out there and, you know, really pounding the pavement to uh, bring this music to audiences and not just classical music audiences, which I think this part is really cool. Um, she's playing, you know, in concert halls like uh, a classical musician would traditionally do. And she's also playing in clubs for rock audiences and she's playing festivals for uh, chiptune audiences, which uh, we're going to talk about that uh, a bunch in the interview. And uh, so if you'd like to learn more about Mirene and uh, read her really fantastic blog, and uh, check out her website you can do so at mirene.com that's m-e-e 
R-E-N-A-I.com. Um, and I would highly recommend that you do that. So let's get right on to the interview. This is my interview with flutist Mirane Shim. Welcome, Mirane, to All the Cool Parts. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be on. <laughs> yeah, no problem, man. We're uh, I'm very excited. I really like your album. Um, and uh, I'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, just general questions about yourself and uh, your playing and your sort of... Uh, I don't know, your, your, your kind of outlook on music. One thing I, I like to ask performers who perform new music, because I've, uh, I've interviewed quite a, you know, quite a few performers on the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. And some of them play, a, you know, like they'll have a few new pieces or maybe one new piece, you know, on their, on their album. Um, but a lot of times they won't, uh, play anything, anything new. It's just a uh, kind of more traditional things. And I'm always curious to know how performers like you who have decided to, you know, specialize in playing the music of your own time, you know, how did you, how did you get there? Um, it was sort of, well, <clears throat> I can't say that I specialize in it. I just enjoy it. Um, it sort of was an accident, you know, my first, like, I was never against new music. I'm <laughs> nor am I against, you know, Baroque music or romantic, sure, you know, sure. music. Um, but like the first really cool piece that I started working on, um, actually was just, I don't know, probably in 2003 or 2004, um, <clears throat> And there's just a really cool piece by Janice Mizro Mitchell for a solo flute. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I think it's so cool that I want to learn it. So that was actually my first time learning multiphonics and things like that. And when you start doing it, after the first one, which is really hard, it's like, oh, the next one's not so bad. And the right. next one gets it the next one's even easier. And it's easier. And um after a while, yeah, I realized that there were other flutists that were scared to play the new stuff because you know you, that's with some exceptions I think most flutists education you know on the instrument is like very heavily based on the the traditional right and in which uh, there's good reason for that but um you don't really get exposed to it until you have to be <laughs> right uh, yeah, yeah so yeah. so I started doing it and then I was like wow okay there aren't that many people doing it and this is sort of fun and it's sort of cool that I'm playing music that's been written while I was like while I've been alive and so I started doing it um more and more and also um there's I love playing Bach but there's nothing worse than playing Bach to a room full of flutists because or <laughs> you know because uh, everybody has their own opinion and there's so many you know, open-minded people with who are all into all kinds of interpretation, but then there's also so many things that you want to do correctly. And oh, then I know guitar yeah. is exactly the same. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah. so I found myself really um, being drawn to like the romantic style, also because you can just sort of let loose 
and then doing playing new music it's awesome because most of the time people don't even know what it's supposed to sound like so right. it feels so <laughs> much safer it's so much safer and um there's less self-doubt and you know second guessing myself and then after that it's like okay i just keep on doing this so that's where i am yeah i mean that's really interesting perspective um i've never heard anybody say it quite like that but you're right. I mean, it is. I guess it is kind of freeing because you don't have this incredible backlog of um, performers, you know, that have already done the piece and you don't have this huge library of, you know, quote unquote, definitive recordings and all this stuff is, you know, you're making the definitive recording really on a lot of these um, in a in a sense, you know. Yeah, which is also frightening and very cool at the same time. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and, you know, you mentioned uh, the first piece you played um, was the Janice uh, Miserable Mitchell piece, which she has a piece on this CD, which we're going to talk about. Um, and you mentioned, you know, for the first time tackling stuff like uh, multiphonics and other, uh, I guess what's called extended techniques. Um and you also mentioned that most flutists don't learn that, you know, they come up learning more traditional ways. Were you kind of sort of left to your own devices to figure out how to, how to do this stuff or? Um, sort of, I mean, these days <clears throat> within the last 10 years, I mean, things are really different in the pedagogical sense. Um, younger students are learning how to do cool things earlier, which is great. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. But when I was younger, you know, before I went, like even through college, um, it, it sort of seemed as though there was like a, <clears throat> you had to master this first before you can do this, you know, instead of saying, well, you can do this too. And as, as a teacher, I've figured out that by introducing extended techniques earlier, it really helps, you know, grasping some of the other kinds of techniques at the same time. So it really is a benefit to learn how to do some of the cool stuff early on because then the more traditional things just they're just easier yeah cool 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 and this is um your second album right yes and um how has it been the second time around i mean um this is kind of a selfish question Uh, i'm in the middle of sort of getting together my first cd Mm -hmm. and you know i'm sure there's a lot of challenges obviously of course you had to overcome and um, things you had to learn and figure out the first time Um, how has it been the second time around well the logistical stuff I figured out the first time so that was a little bit easier Um, but the second time it's also hard because you want it to be better than the first one and you don't want it to suck right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so there was a little bit of pressure on myself um, but you know, it came together and I'm very happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, cool. Uh, let's get on to the music. Okay. So, uh, we're just going to sort of go through here. Um, I have, uh, excerpts from everything. Um, so we're going to hear just a little bit from, um, each of the pieces, but we're just going to go in CD order here. We're going to start with Daniel Felsenfeld, his piece to committee, a self parody for flute, cello, and piano. And on this track, um, you play with uh, Lori Lack, pianist, and Paul Rhodes, cello. Yes. And uh, yeah, yeah, fantastic player. How how long have you been playing with them? 
Um, let's see. We premiered this work back in uh, what? What's two thousand? I think it was April of last year, and that's the first time that I um, started playing with Paul. Um, and I've played with Lori, you know, over several years, and she's fantastic. Um, but I didn't know how awesome Paul was until I started playing with him because um, the cellist that I recorded on my last uh, CD, Rachel couldn't do it this time, so she couldn't do the premiere of the Felsenfeld piece. So she suggested Paul, and just he's just he's a monster cellist. Yeah, so it was awesome. Yeah, and um, can you tell us a little bit about Daniel and how you sort of you know came to discover him and his music? Yeah, sure. Uh, it was a happy accident. Um, I was following him on Twitter, and he just put out a tweet saying, "Hey, are there are there any flutists who have a subscription to Flute Talk magazine?" And I said, "I do." And he said, "Oh, great! There's supposed to be a, a favorable review of one of my piccolo pieces in there." So I said, "Oh, awesome!" So I looked, and there was. And I offered to you know mail him a couple copies because I had a group subscription for my flute studio. And I had a couple extras, <clears throat> so I sent, I mailed them, and he offered to, you know, pay me back for the postage or whatever. And I jokingly told him that he can take it off my bill when I commission a piece from him. <laughs> and uh, he, he was like, "You can't kid around, you know." About oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, luckily, a few months at at the same time, um, I had a little project with a, another cellist, and we were. You know, thinking about commissioning a bunch of pieces from different composers, but that project sort of, sort of fell apart. Well, it fell apart in pieces. Um, we had all their composers lined up, but one of them backed out. So we were like, "Oh, well, let's try this Felsenfeld guy." So he was supposed to write a piece for flute and cello originally, but then my flute and cello project um, <clears throat> went away. So um, I asked Danny to, you know, if he would be interested in writing a piece for me anyway. And so we came up with flute, cello and piano. Um, and then we used Kickstarter to fund the commission. So that's, um, that's how we got started. Okay. Yeah. 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 I remember you talking about this on the, uh, on sound notion, um, that, yeah, this is the Kickstarter piece. Right. And, um, I was going to, uh, read just a little bit from the uh, liner notes about the piece. And basically this is uh, Daniel's words about his own piece. Uh, but he says, uh, I can't remember if I was in a playful or spiteful mood when I began to committee a self parody for flute, cello and piano. So much in an artist's life is determined by committees, by panels whose judgments matter, but ought not to fights are fixed. The house always wins. Moderate notions win over more daring work to satisfy strong personalities talent cannot be the determining factor everything is unfair i needed to address the stress strain and overwhelming sadness that can cause even the most dedicated among us ergo this work part self-deprecation part raw confessional one of my deep psych pieces um i strongly identify with that yeah (laughs) I, I, i think any composer can i mean that's um you know, uh, that, you know, that, that hit me, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, I think, uh, every composer has, has felt that. And I think probably, um, pretty much every performer has, has felt that in a way to, uh, sure. in their own way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we're going to listen to an excerpt from the second movement, uh, out of three. Um, this movement is called how one becomes lonely. Uh, 
yeah what uh, do you have anything to say about how one becomes lonely well the beginning of the second movement i mean the first movement um turns into the second movement and it, there's a really 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 <clears throat> long piano loneliness like like forever tremolo right. um, sad melody kind of um a thing in the beginning and i can totally feel the loneliness and then when the flute and cello come in it's it's just as lonely even though there's three of us playing at the same time right, and right and it's so simple and <clears throat> you know danny's just his style is so clear even though he says in in the notes that you know he's parodying himself or others it's so it's such a Felsenfeld piece and i get it and this this movement um there was like no place to edit basically so i think it has maybe one edit so yeah, there's yeah. there you go <laughs> yeah i mean uh, uh, this particular um excerpt that we're going to play it's it's basically like the tail end of that long piano tremolo section mm -hmm. um and then it goes into when the flute and cello come in um together you know with the melody um and you're right he did such an amazing job i think of capturing um this title you know the feeling how one becomes lonely and uh i, I don't know it's almost like this feeling of uh, loneliness, obviously, but sort of trudging along and keep doing, you know, to keep doing this thing, even though nothing's happening, you're sort of like sitting in this room by yourself. And I don't know, that's kind of the feeling that I get, but I think he did a great job at capturing that yeah. piece. You know, it's so, it's very sort of soul searching, sort of introspective and pensive, mm -hmm. um, and beautiful really too. Um, especially the, in the piano, the, this kind of shimmering harmonies, um, kind of, you know, tense at times, but, um, I think beautiful in its way as well. So, yes. yeah. Um, so, uh, let's check this out. And uh, you know, one thing I did was, um, I actually contacted all the composers. Uh -huh. <laughs> I didn't hear back from all of them, but, um, most of them I did. And I basically just asked them, you know, uh, you know, if there is, there's anything they wanted to say about their pieces, you know, beyond what was in the program notes and if they wanted to ask you anything and uh daniel did basically all he said was to tell you that you're an amazing musician and a force of nature <laughs> so i told him that i would pass that along so that's all all, all that he had to say really um so yeah, yeah let's let's check this out okay okay this is the second movement from daniel felsenfeld's to committee a self-parody this is how one becomes lonely
Okay, we just heard Daniel Felsenfeld's Two Committee of Self-Parody, and uh, the next piece on the disc is Janice Miserable Mitchell's The Art of Noise for Flute and Percussion. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do is just basically give the listener a sense of the sounds they're going to hear here. Mm-hmm. Um, you're playing... Are you playing flute and alto on this? Or yes, just... flute, like regular concert C flute and alto flute. And then I also play a little bit of percussion. Right. And I also sing a little bit. Right. So you're using your voice, using flute, alto flute. You're playing bla- uh, break drums, suspended cymbals, castanets, gong, and mouth siren, right? Yes. And then Christopher G. Jones, um, your partner in the AB duo, right? Yes. He is playing uh, vibraphone, flower pots, mouth siren, cowbells, snare drum, washboard, congas, temple blocks, bongos, bamboo and metal wind chimes, break drums, suspended cymbals, gong, tambourine, and tom-toms. So just like a huge (laughs) array of sounds. Um, And I mean, there's like almost an really an equally huge range of sounds that come out of just the flute. Well, that is the genius of Janice Mizrow Mitchell, who is a fantastic flutist. And um, her style is unmistakable. Her writing is so solid. And she's like, because she's such a fantastic flutist, she really knows how to get the most out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, let me just uh, read a little bit of what she said about her piece. And I guess it was um, sort of the impetus of the piece. It was inspired by... Uh, Luigi Russolo's uh, Futurist Manifesto, right? Right. I love all these movements in the early 20th century. Like everybody had a manifesto, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, this this little um, part from the manifesto says, uh, at first the art of music sought purity, limpidity, and sweetness of sound. Then different sounds were amalgamated, care being taken, however, to caress the ear with gentle harmonies. Today, music, as it becomes continually more complicated, strives to amalgamate the most dissonant, strange, and harsh sounds. In this way, we uh, come ever closer to noise sound. So what the futurists were trying to do was um, sort of create, you know, they were like really early before, um, obviously, you know, analog uh, and digital machines and stuff. So they were trying to create music out of kind of everyday objects and sounds and noises and um yeah and that's i don't know that that's where she got her her uh yeah inspiration yeah that's that's the inspiration behind the entire album actually really Uh, yeah so if you think of if you i mean as we go through some of the pieces you'll hear that you know starting with danny's piece which is the most traditional um you know in style compared to the rest of the um, album and you get all the sweet and you know exciting and dissonant sounds but it's very um, well compared to some of the other stuff it's pretty straightforward and traditional and then um, you then Janice's piece introduces um, you know more sounds and then the next piece is you know like even a different world of sound and then the next piece is like an entirely new universe of sound and then yeah. Right. Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. Anything you want to say? I wanted you to talk about a little, I mean, you don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, but talk a little bit about um, just some of the flute sounds that you're making and like, you know, how you're making those sounds. And um, yeah. Well, um, there's lots of sort of, hmm, you multiphonics just by overblowing and just getting like, you know, wide spectrum of the harmonics. Um, the, Janice uses that a lot and very well. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of um, just straight up multiphonics, you know, using special fingerings and sometimes not to get different intervals. Um, <laughs> theoretically, they would be very clear and equal, you know, in <laughs> right. quality. Um, and then there were some really cool effects that she did where um, you overblow through the harmonic series while you sing um, a different note and at the same time flutter tonguing and, you know, sort of really qu- uh, really crazy, awesome stuff. And then um, singing in, har- in harmonizing with the flute, which is um, sort of fun, actually. Yeah. So that's like singing and blowing air through the flute and producing notes on the flute at the same time, right? Yeah. So different yeah. pitch on the flute and different pitch in my humming. Right, right. And uh, yeah, one of the things I loved about this piece was, um, I don't know, I just, I, I've heard um, many, you know, flute pieces, <laughs> many new flute pieces. A lot of times, um, maybe the, you know, multiphonics, I don't know, sometimes seem a little gratuitous, like they're just there to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nothing in this piece seemed gratuitous. It just, you know it all works so well. It all seems so natural to the, to the piece, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just such a cool sound world. Um, yeah, I guess let's just check it out. Okay. Okay. So this is, uh, a, an excerpt from Janice Misero Mitchell, uh, the art of noise.
And that was Janice Miserable Mitchell, The Art of Noise. And we're going to move on to Mercurial. Wait, uh, before we move on, I just, sure. um, I just wanted to mention, like, when somebody listens to this album and listens to the entire um, piece, The Art of Noise, they'll um, hear some me sings, singing or speaking some words while I play. And that's like a hallmark uh, Janice Miserable Mitchell kind of a effect. Um, and she's a, a quite a poet also in addition to being a flutist and performance artist. Um, and so she uses words so well. And actually that was, I forgot to mention in the beginning that um, that's one of the things I requested from her um, when I commissioned this piece, I asked her to, um, you know, do her, do her thing and uh, add some poetry or some words just because um, if you see, I don't know, everybody should check out some of her um, performance art and some of her performances on YouTube. Just look up Janice Miserable Mitchell and you'll, um, you'll hear some awesome stuff. Um, one of her newer things, um, it's called Amendment Blues Number One, and it's just genius, so genius. Those of the those of you who are um, on the left leaning side, like I am, will really appreciate it. <laughs> awesome, yeah, I see it now. Um, she's got the words that she uses in bold print, um, right in the in the uh, liner notes. Yeah. Yeah, and then she uh, has them in different languages. That's cool. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because um, I didn't catch that at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, cool. Um, so, yeah, the next piece, uh, J.C. Batzner, uh, Mercurial for flute and, I guess, pre-recorded sound, I guess you could say. Right. Um, yeah, what's uh, can you tell us a little about Jay and, and how you, you know, found him and his music sure um <clears throat> well after i got janice's piece um in the mail because i had uh, i commissioned janice's piece and danny's piece um i was like wow this is i have to start with danny's piece and then i have to like grow this album into like more noise you know based on janice's piece and so luckily sort of around the same time i had a call for scores for solo flute pieces with or without electronics or with or without anything, as long as one person can perform it. Um, and Jay um, sent me Mercurial and I listened to it and I was like, oh, this has to be on the album. <laughs> this is so perfect. It's so cool. And it's not like any other flute and quote tape piece that I've ever heard. It's just, it it was totally kick-ass. So I said, I, I need to re record this. So, um, some some composers who've um, sent me stuff, I'm really, really sorry. I still haven't gotten back to everybody yet, and, but I will. Um, but, like, as soon as I heard Jay's piece, like, I emailed him right away, and I, and I said, I'm definitely playing it. And then I wasn't sure if I wanted to commit to recording it yet, but I knew that I wanted to record it. So Yeah, that's, that's awesome. There you go. Yeah, awesome. And And he says... Uh, in the liner notes, he says, uh, Mercurial is a journey that highlights the soloist ability uh, to blend into a wide variety of sonic landscapes. Uh, yeah, that's uh, definitely true. Uh, <laughs> the piece begins with a low droning flute sounds. And once the soloist is comfortable in that setting, the scene changes abruptly. That's one of the things I loved about the piece. And that's, I mean, that says a lot about the piece right there. Um it's that, you know, you, you go on and, and soon, I mean, you know, I think even it applies to the listener, you know, once the listener sort of gets comfortable with what's going on, he just, 
you know, changes it to someone else. He just changes things up to something else, um, which I love. It's kind of like that mixtape mentality, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Um, and he kind of added a little bit uh, when I uh, contacted him. And he said, uh, that's not um, basically in the liner notes. He said uh, that several ideas, um, basically that he took several ideas from a solo flute piece uh, that he wrote in 98 called Away. Uh, basically, he he wasn't happy with the piece, I guess, but he still liked the motives. Mm. And um, so he started writing Mercurial in hopes of basically salvaging that old material. And so what I liked about that is, um, you know, he's using almost sort of found material to create this recorded, you know, you know, backing track that you're playing along with. Right. And even the flute material is found. I mean, it's his own found material, but it's even that is kind of, you know, assembled out of found material. I thought that was really cool. Um, And, uh, you know, another thing that he says in here, sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but another thing he says in here that I just thought was, (laughs) was really cool was he sort of talks about where he got his sounds And one of the places that he got his sounds from, from was this uh, website called freesound.org. And, uh, he actually, uh, thanks some of the users um, like uh, Ashassin, Skip Tracer, Nick Stage, Joe Bro. Um, it kind of reminded me of like, you know, when I was a kid, I had this um, Commodore 64. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was this like whole network of people that would sort of like crack these games, right? And then you would play these games and this screen would come up with all their names, but they were all these, you know, handles like this. Right. Um <laughs> I'm not saying I ever had any of those games, oh, but of course, you know, of course. yeah, yeah, <laughs> I knew this dude that did. But anyway, uh, um, yeah, it sort of reminded me of that. This sort of, uh, you know, free, just sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of hacker <laughs> sort of mentality. You know, this just kind of, I don't know. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah, that's cool. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, anything you want to say about this piece before we listen to it? Um, no, it's just a really cool piece. Okay, man. <laughs> well, let's hear it. This is J.C. Batsner with Mercurial. <laughs> Thank you. 
and we just heard Mercurial of J.C. Batzner, and we're going to move on to Matthew Joseph Payne's Flight of the Bleeper Bird for Flute and Game Boy. So um, this was, I don't know, uh, it's, a, it's a really cool piece. I mean, this, this is um, one that's really different um, and really catches your eye. I mean, I have to be totally honest. When I first saw you post about this piece, you know, this piece for uh, Flute and Game Boy, um, at first I thought it was sort of, I was like, well, this is going to be gimmicky. That I'm uh-huh. just gonna, and then I went and I watched the video of you playing it, and um, it is a great piece. Uh, it, yeah, there's nothing gimmicky about it. It's just it's a great piece. It's uh, a fantastic composition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, totally agree. Um, he's. I'm just gonna read a little bit of about what he said about it. Um, he said, uh, "Chip tune." I guess I should. Or we should uh, explain chip tune. Do you want to sure. do that? Um, I will try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am I am not an experienced, you know, chip tune person. I mean, I, I've only been exposed to it for like a year. Um, chip tune is, I guess, anything where you take um, sounds from usually old, um, older hardware. You use the sound cards or the sound mechanisms from like the old devices and you reprogram them or hack them so that they make the sounds that you want them to emit. So I guess like an early um, version of chiptune is like, like circuit bending. Um, And then, you know, where, yeah, like you rewire a a speak and spell for those of those of you who are my generation and older, (laughs) um, you know, to saying different things or making different sounds. And then, um, yeah, I mean, but now like chiptune is like a huge thing. It's a very niche kind of a thing, but it's a huge, there's a huge following. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't realize what a huge thing it was until um, I started listening to this piece and um, and researching it. Um, he says chiptune is often seen as a study of working within limitations, but in reality, the four monophonic voices only three of which can play actual pitches of the Game Boy's internal synthesizer have a wider pitch range and more tonal variety than a string trio. Uh, each voice is capable of uh, changing musical roles instantaneously and rapidly, interchanging melodic, harmonic, or percussive duties in ways that human players could never manage. Such a set of voices uh, would only be considered limitations in the world of computer music where artists are used to having essentially infinite voices with infinite capabilities being limited only by the capabilities of their computer. So basically, I mean, he's just writing music for four voices, one of which is essentially kind of a percussion mm-hmm. sort of line. Um, and then he has like two channels within the Game Boy that he can uh, use samples, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's what he said. Um, and uh, he's just basically using this as and writing for it as he would like a string quartet or uh, or a chamber ensemble. Um, yeah. And the, one of the cool things is that I thought he sort of, you know, he treated the flute not really um, as a traditional solo instrument. He basically treated it just as like a fifth voice. Yes. To be integrated into the uh, the Game Boy sounds. 
Right. Yeah. So, man, how in the world did you find this? And yeah, what's the story behind this? Oh, how? Do, okay. Well, Matt is he's a, like a multi multi instrumental like mad scientist genius. So he. I was I'm a big fan of this guy named Jonathan Mann who writes one song a day and he's been doing huh. it for like four, four years now and he calls himself Song a Day Man and everybody should look him up because he's really cool. Anyway, he had this Kickstarter campaign a little after mine um, where he was finally going to actually record an album. Um, so I you know, gave money to his campaign and I was all excited for him and after at the end of the campaign, he he was so cool. He just invited anybody and anyone who gave or is some somehow part of that Kickstarter project. He's like, do you sing or play anything? Just come over. We're going to be recording this album in June. It's going to be called June a Day. We're going to write and completely record and produce a song each day, which is insane. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, sign me up. And luckily, I made it to the very last day of the rec- of June of, of recording. I just couldn't make it um, earlier. So I went. Matt was doing all the string and horn arrangements for whoever was showing up that day. He would like he he would be there like on his you know laptop like spitting out you know charts for whoever is just showing <laughs> up. Wow! It was just crazy. And you know, um, yeah. So I showed up. He's like, okay, I've got this thing for you. Okay, listen, you know, Jonathan has already put down, you know, the the vocal parts and here's, the, you know, the guitar and stuff. And I listened to it a couple times and I, you know, Matt wrote a little bit of an intro and then, you know, you just do whatever. And so I had a great time recording that. And then um, there was a show to for the CD release for, I know this is long, long story, but it's so cool. Um, so um, there was a CD release show for uh, Jonathan Mann. And I, I, of course, I played in that band. Um, and Matt also played like 10 instruments that day. And, and then Matt, Matt's band, the glowing stars, uh, was one of the openers, um, for that show. And I was blown away about how awesome a performer Matt was. I was seriously, and of course his band uses, you know, is a chiptune band. Yeah. yeah. And like Matt is a killer drummer. I mean, he can play everything, but huh, he can, wow. uh, well, okay. He doesn't play woodwinds and he doesn't play unfretted strings i think that those are his only limitations but he can play everything else and uh he's such an amazing drummer and performer and then like he's got this you know this these game boys going on and i was like oh my goodness like this is so awesome and i already (laughs) knew that matt had a you know classical music background and i was like i need this this is what i need and so that night i shoved the you know my first cd in his hand and you know i was like just listen to this listen to this and then like the next day i emailed him i kept on emailing him like i emailed him like once a week like every week like every other day i would be like checking my message i'd leave him a message and he like he never get back to me and i don't know why but anyway all my <laughs> other friends like who knew him like got phone calls because i was like why isn't he calling me back and finally i got him to write this piece and i'm so so glad because it's just amazing Wow, that's a, Sorry for a long story. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's a. I mean, that's a great story, and then you you end up with this. I mean, that's yeah, that's amazing. It's uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this this piece we're gonna hear um, a couple excerpts from this, 
and uh, we're gonna start. Well, uh, in the very intro, we heard um, part of the first movement. Um, I fought the Daw and the Daw won. Um, and that's funny if you're an audio nerd. Um, the uh, second movement is called "Obviously, I Was Abducted by Paper Aliens." Do you know the story behind these titles? I do not. <laughs> uh, okay, um, this is like uh, the the um, uh, the part we're going to hear is the part where you sort of encourage the crowd to get into it, right? By sort of clapping along with a beat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I heard you say on Sound Notion that you played this for a kind of classical crowd and didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you should have. You should have done it, man. I, I, I know. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> yeah. Get it, get him to do something. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what we're going to hear this part. And, um, the music part, you know, it's really interesting, uh, to me, it's sort of, you know, obviously you can hear the classical, uh, influence in it, but it's sort of, uh, part classical kind of part video game and kind of part nine inch nails or something is, is what I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so cool. Let's just hear this so we can just sort of hear what we're getting into. Okay. All right. So this is Matthew Joseph Payne, Flight of the Bleeper Bird. The second movement, obviously, I was abducted by paper aliens.
And we just heard the second movement. Obviously, I was abducted by paper aliens. And uh, we're going to hear the third movement now, um, an excerpt from that called The Entire World is Slowly Turning into Snails. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what kind of reaction have you got? I know you've played this uh, for a lot of different audiences. I mean, a lot of different kinds of audiences, not just classical audiences. But um, yeah, how have your different audiences... I don't know. How have they reacted to this piece? Well, I mean, it, the unanimous reaction is that it's a really remarkable piece. Um, no matter the audience, everybody is intrigued and you can't help but talk about it. And yeah, I mean, it's great. Um, in the new music, you know, crowd, everyone, you know, loves it, obviously, and appreciates um, the composition for what it is. Um, in the chiptune crowd, like the, you know, just the rock crowd, they love it. They dance to it and they appreciate that. They never thought that a flute could like be cool. Um, <laughs> and this, these are audiences that, that cannot relate to Jethro Tull, you know, obviously they're a much younger crowd. Right, right. Um, and so like flute and Game Boy is, and it's really awesome. And, you know, cause the piece is so great and it's, it has a really good pop sensibility, so it's great in any kind of a rock or pop kind of crowd. And then the straight up classical crowd, um, it's a, I think it's a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Everybody smiles for sure. Right, right. Um, yeah, and it's definitely a remarkable evening. You will not be bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of got something for like all these audiences to appreciate. I mean, in it. And, and amazingly, it just it works so well. Um, yeah, and it and this piece was the most technically demanding on the entire album. It was crazy hard. The first movement, insanely hard. So, yeah, you know, um, I talked to uh, David Farrell, the the composer of the last piece, mm -hmm. and um, he had a couple questions for you about this piece. Okay. <laughs> um, he wants to know. Um, you know, how, how basically how the piece gets put together in a live performance, like what goes into setting this up and just making it happen, you know, smoothly. Um, well, luckily, I mean, the beginnings of the first and third movements have intros by the Game Boy that, you know, sets up this, you know, the pulse and the speed of the piece so that I can just jump in and, um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, but the Game Boy machines, they don't feel the pull of the, you know, the first beat. And just like, like live performers, we feel the pull towards one and then three or whatever, depending on the meter. There's no meter, you know, um, in, in the heart of the Game Boy. So when things get really, really complicated, near, like near the end of the first movement, for example, and like the Game Boy is playing like 32nd notes or 16th notes or whatever nonstop and... It was really, really hard for me to get a handle of like where the pulse was, and so it just took a long, long time yeah. um, of just getting used to it. But I mean, as far as live performance, it's easy. Um, plug in the Game Boy, turn them on. Um, I have a usually I perform with a monitor in-ear monitor where I can hear myself and the Game Boy. Um, yeah, so that I can stay with it, and I have some basic effects on my mixer, so. 
Yeah, and I was I was wondering about the Game Boy itself. I mean, I know the Game Boy um, ran off of cartridges, right? Mm-hmm. So how? I I mean, I know he probably doesn't do this, but I mean, does he like make a cartridge? Like, how did like how does this work? Oh well, I guess um, there are places and people who make um, Game Boy cartridges, and they like flash it with. LSDJ, the um, program that you use to program, <laughs> the software program that you use to program the uh, sound card, you know, the sounds. Okay. And the orders of the sounds in the um, Game Boy sound card. Um, yeah. And then you so, can use the Game Boy itself to input and program the, um, the cartridge. Right. Wow. So it is an actual cartridge that the... Yeah. <laughs> that's that's so cool um and uh dave had had one other question um basically he just wanted to know uh what your interest is in a chip tune and video game music i mean before that you mentioned before this that you hadn't really had much experience with the chip tune scene but had you had experience or interest in in music for video games before this or honestly i was pretty indifferent I mean, I wasn't against video games or video game music, but I wasn't a rabid fan either. Um, it, you know, what really sold me on this was watching um, Matt Payne perform. That's what got me head over heels, like interested in this. Um, yeah, I was never like an avid video gamer. Um, I mean, I've played my share of video games, but you know, you have to have. Especially like the first person like shooter kind of games, you have you have to have such good video cards and hardware that I never had good enough um, hardware to really make that work for me because I always got motion sickness, you know. Right. So I <laughs> right. far, but I'm all for SimCity, you know. Those oh, kinds of- yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, I I was never a huge gamer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was Dave's question. So there, okay. you, there you go, Dave. There's your answer. Uh, so, um, yeah, let's, let's listen to this last part. Okay. This is again, Matthew Joseph Payne flight of the bleeper bird. This is from the third movement. The entire world is slowly turning into snails.
word, the entire world is slowly turning into snails. And we move on to our last excerpt from the last piece on the CD by David Farrell, Moonwave for solo flute. Um, and Dave had a, a, a couple interesting things to say. Um, I actually know Dave. He's a friend of mine. Cool. And I was uh, so... Uh, happy when I when I saw that you had a piece of his on here um he actually used to live here where I live in a tarot Indiana um and you know we used to go out and play frisbee golf all the time and (laughs) and whatever but um yeah uh you know one interesting thing about this piece one thing I wanted to ask you because he actually sent me the score (laughs) Mm -hmm. um is why you decided to not go with the optional percussion part. I mean, it's optional, obviously, you know, but you just decided not to go with it. Okay. Um, well, it was a, it was a mostly a logistical issue. Um, Dave's piece was the last piece that I chose and recorded for the album. Um, I knew that I wanted to wrap up recording, you know, before the holidays and I was, um, like, uh, I just need, it, this album just needs one more piece. And although I love everything on the on the album, um, I just needed something after, you know, playing all the Game Boy stuff and like Mercurial and all the extended techniques in Janice's piece, I really just wanted something pretty. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I was considering recording a piece that's already been recorded. Um, something simple and just pretty that I could just really enjoy having a good time and just playing pretty sounds on the flute like you would expect from the instrument. Um, but then I was like, well, that's sort of lame that I, you know, I would play something that's been recorded, especially when the rest of the album is all either new commissions or never been recorded commercially. So I was still trying to get through um, the huge backlog of compositions that have been sent to me by composers for my call for scores and so I started going through them this was uh, Thanksgiving weekend and I told myself I'm going to record my last piece this coming week like on a Tuesday or whatever um so like I was going through it I was going through it and I you know got to Dave's piece I listened to it and um and I looked at the score it was really really simple and there was that optional percussion part so I emailed them and said well um, I, I really want to record it soon and my percussionist is in Chicago, I'm in California and so um, I can either not record it with percussion or I'll record the flute part and then I'll send you know that to Chicago and then have it recorded there and then you know it, so then it won't really be chamber music at that point and Dave was like it's optional, you don't have to do it right, right, right. so I was like okay great <laughs> I won't use it so <laughs> that's what happened well, I think it works really well. I mean, um, everything else on the album is, you know, flute and something. And here, you know, we can just hear you play, really. I mean, just with nothing else there. You know what I mean? I, I think it works really well. Again, that is a sort of mixtape mentality, you know, uh, the way that you arrange the pieces and you have, you know, these peaks and valleys throughout the entire album. Um yeah, I think it works really well to end with this piece. Um, yeah. Um, 
you know, one thing about this piece, there's a couple of things about this piece that I noticed um, that I really liked or that I thought was interesting. The one thing, uh, the first thing was this sort of uh, very open notation. So Dave um, talked about this where he, he kind of notated it. Um, so the notation would be very open to interpretation so that hopefully like if two different performers played it, um, you'd get, you know, hopefully two pretty different interpretations of the piece. Yeah. Um, uh, is that one of the things that drew you to the piece or? Actually, um, that was, if I had to, if I could do it again, I would probably, uh, spend a lot more time letting this piece marinate in my brain. Um, and I would have, like, if I perform it tomorrow, it would be way different than what I recorded. But And that's okay. That's sort of like how the recording process works. Um, but, yeah, I remember sort of um, fighting myself, like, trying to stay true to what's what, what was written, even though, you know, it does say, you know, freely or whatever. I, like, the dutiful classical musician that I am, I felt, like, really strongly, like, okay, well, this it's a quarter note rest here or whatever. And I felt like I had to you know, stick to it sometimes. Right. Right. But uh, yeah, that's one of the cool things I, I thought was great about this piece was that it, you know, on, on first glance and looking at the score, it does, it looks very, very simple. Um, but it, there is that it's so open to interpretation. You know, like you said, if when you would do it now, it'd be totally different that it's it has such a potential to, uh, I don't know, keep you, interested and challenged in a certain way over time you know i don't know yeah. if that makes sense but yeah um it, the other thing i loved about it was uh i don't know just a sort of plaintive it has almost like a renaissance quality to it almost like a i don't know a hildegard hmm. chant quality to it you know it keeps coming back to this you know f that's sort of anchored on the whole time um and then it goes, you know, up into these, uh, uh, you know, kind of beautiful uh, melodic moments, and then it comes back down. I don't know. That's the, I'm I'm a really big early music fan, so I mean that's kind of the impression that it had on me. But um, yeah, anyth yeah, anything else you want to say about this piece? No, I think it's really really pretty, and um, I um, I I look forward to performing it again. Cool. All right, well, let's check it out. This is David Farrell with Moonwave. <laughs> Thank you. 
And we just heard David Farrell's Moonwave. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we, I, I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah, no problem. Um, everybody should go out and buy this. Where can we buy this? Um, you can buy it pretty much anywhere um, as far as downloads are concerned, like digital downloads um, anywhere. And then also um, streaming. You can find it on Spotify. Um, I don't know if Last.fm, is that a streaming site? I mean, pretty much anywhere that you can stream or download, it's available. Um, CDs um, should be available on Amazon and CD Baby and Bandcamp. Um, and then I made a limited edition vinyl, um, seven inch of the Flight of the Bleeper Bird, and that you can get from Bandcamp or at a show. And so I was going to ask you, those are still available. Yes. Okay. So everybody should go out and get one of these because <laughs> I bought one and, <laughs> and when it came, uh, I was kind of talking to me Renee about this before <laughs> we started recording, but when it came, um, so we've already talked about the piece. The piece is really is super cool. Um, and you managed to package it in an equally cool way. Um, what you did is you got a bunch of old um, floppy drives. Are they like seven? What no, are they? they're eight-inch floppy disks. Eight-inch. Uh, where did you find them, first of all? Gotta love the internet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's actually there's a guy selling eight-inch floppies for people to actually use as functional eight-inch floppies. Uh, in eight inch floppy drives. So I asked wow. him, I told him, well, I, they don't need to be functional. They just have to look like they would still be functional. So he sold them to me at a discount. And so I bought them. I cut the tops off. Uh, when I could, I took the label, the old label completely off. And a lot of them were, you know, had dates of like 1983, 1984. Right. <laughs> awesome. And then I made my own label. Um, and put it either over the existing label or after I took the old label off. And then the seven inch um, vinyl records fit into it just perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, it's, it looks like they were custom made almost uh, for the seven inch. And one of the really cool things was when I opened it up and took the, you know, the record out, um, you left the original floppy in there. Like yeah. the round, <laughs> and I was just like, I just freaked out. It's like <laughs> my my nerd just came out in full force, and I was just like, oh man, that is so awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you have a record player and a turntable, which for me it's a a pretty recent thing that I've um sort of gotten into getting records and gotten a turntable, but um, yeah, you you should really go out and uh and get this. It's really really cool. Um, so yeah, again, thank you for coming on so much. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, thanks for, you know, helping me share this music with the world. And thanks again to Mirna for doing that interview. It was a lot of fun. And if you'd like to, again, learn more about Mirna and where she's playing, maybe if it's near you, you can go to Mirna.com at M E E R E N A I.com. Uh, if you'd like to check out our website, 
go to allthecoolparts.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Anthony Landman. And you can find me on Facebook. You can join All the Cool Parts on Facebook uh, where we can have more of a discussion and and stuff like that on there. And, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure what's coming next for All the Cool Parts, uh, but hopefully I'll have another episode up uh, within a month or so. And uh, until then, I'm, we're going to go out with uh, a little more of Dave Farrell's Moonwave for solo flute, and I'll see you guys next time.